appreciate what you've sacrificed for us, and we appreciate we've been spending time together in the minor prophets of the Old Testament. We started with Jonah, and we spent five Sundays carefully going through Jonah. And we learned in Jonah that God will forgive even the vilest offenders. In Jonah's case, it was Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians. He will do that. He will forgive if there is true repentance, a true turning away from evil toward God. And why is that? Because God loves us. God loves us simply because of the fact that he made us. And I reminded you in Jonah that we are supposed to have that kind of perspective on the people around us, the Creator's perspective. And then we spent one Sunday in Nahum, a book that probably you haven't spent a lot of time in. And I told you that Nahum was the rest of the story of Nineveh, as we learned that Nineveh, after their repentance in Jonah, only a generation later fell back into their sin. And we learn that God is a God of forgiveness, but he is also a God of justice. And the Ninevites, the Assyrians, they were judged by the Lord. And God destroyed the empire of Assyria. And then we talked about the little prophet, the little book, the little prophetic book of Obadiah. Again, a a book you probably haven't spent much time in, but I think... There's so much for us in these minor prophets, and Obadiah did not disappoint. We learned that Obadiah was a message to the Edomites, the nation of Edom, Edom, E-D-O-M, southeast of Israel. And we learned that the Edomites were brothers of the Jews, brothers going all the way back to Jacob and Esau. And we learned that the Edomites, they took advantage and mistreated their brothers, the, the nation of Judah, when Judah was destroyed Rightfully so by the Babylonians. But God did not look kindly at the Edomites because of their pride, their arrogance, thinking that they were in their caves up high, that they would not be judged. And yet they were. And we looked at parallels of Edom and our country today. You know, it's sometimes difficult for us to connect with these prophets because there's a long gap in both time and culture and circumstances between then and now. I hope that we've been able to glean helpful comparisons between them and us. And Today we will continue. God, as we open your word, it is my prayer that you will open our hearts. Help us understand your word as we read out from it. We don't want to read into it. We want you to read into us your word. Speak to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, quiz time. What is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is to love God. Okay, let's take a look at it. Matthew, chapter 22, verse 36. A group of people was questioning Jesus, and they said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So I heard both of those things in, in answers. They are both right. Yeah, this is all part of the one greatest commandment. And in Mark, this, the same thing, but a little bit different. It's worth repeating. So Mark chapter 12, the parallel to that passage says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus, Jesus had given them a good answer, he, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Where did Jesus get that? Did he just pull that out of the air? I mean, he is God. He's allowed to do that. But he did not just pull this out of the air. Jesus was quoting the Old Testament here. He was actually quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. How much of your heart are you supposed to love God with? How much of your soul are you supposed to love God with? How much of your strength are you supposed to love God with? And then Jesus added, your mind. How much of your mind are you supposed to love God with? All. You know, that's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Only a couple verses later in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is verse 13. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God. And his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. I like quoting the other one better. But notice, that's right after the one we're so familiar with. Is it hard for you to recognize or wrap your mind around the fact that our God is a jealous God? It's hard for me to wrap my mind around that because, and I've mentioned this really not in a sermon that long ago, we're not supposed to be jealous, are we? I thought jealousy was bad. Isn't jealousy bad? Now, I said this a couple sermons ago. We are in the Minor Prophets, after all. This is a, kind of a major theme. Jealousy is not necessarily bad. The problem is we use the words incorrectly. Jealousy and envy are not interchangeable the way we think they are in English. Jealousy is when you're upset because someone has taken something that belongs to you. Envy is when you're upset because you want what someone else has. Did you get that? Jealousy can be godly. I mean, literally God has that emotion. Do you know... The fact that God is infinite, I've said this before, and it's been a little bit of a light bulb moment for some of you. One of the problems we have understanding God is we have, under, we have trouble understanding how God's different characteristics fit together. And I've said this before, but it's worth, bearing, it's, it's, it's worth repeating. If God is an ounce of anything, he is an infinite amount of that thing. 
There is no, see, the problem we have is, well, God is love, right? Well, if God is love, how can God also be, like, wrath? How could that be? Because then we, then we, like, rationalize it in our brains. Well, I think God is just more love than he is wrath. We think that. False. God is an infinite being. He cannot have a finite amount of something. This is apologetics. I am defending the faith at this point, defending who God is. God is an infinite amount of any characteristic that he has. One of those is jealousy. How could that be? Well, actually, it's quite logical. If God is an infinite amount of love for his possession, Israel, then he would also be an infinite amount of jealousy if that possession went astray. Oh, this gets interesting now. This morning we're going to learn about another one of the minor prophets. But I really want you to remember this passage in Deuteronomy about loving the Lord your God with all that you are and about the jealousness of God as we look at this next prophet. Because today we're going to look at the prophet Hosea. Hosea is a crazy book. And in fact, it's so crazy that you may not realize this, but I've purposely decided to preach on this when all the kids are gone. Like, this is on purpose. Or most of the kids are gone. Hopefully that's going to be okay. There's a reason for that. Because I'm trying to spare you parents from having to explain what I'm going to say next to your kids. Hosea is 14 chapters long, so we're not going to be able to read the entire book like we were able to read all of Nahum and all of Obadiah and all of Jonah. So I'm just going to read portions of it. I want you to get a flavor for the book, actually from reading the book, not just from me talking about the book. So I am going to read significant portions of the book this morning. But before I read, I need to set the historical context of Hosea, or nothing I say or nothing I read is going to make any sense whatsoever. Okay? So, I would like you to humor me right now. Okay? And I, I, Dave Rokes isn't here. He's hopefully listening. He's at home. He's got COVID. We're concerned about him. We're praying for him. But if Dave was here, he would give some kind of amen here that didn't fit at the right spot. Okay? So, that, that's, Dave does that on purpose. Dave, I love you. Get better. We're praying for you. I've got to do historical context. And I've got a little bit to do so that this makes sense. Are you guys up to that? Do you need a stretch break or something? I mean, I've got some extra communion. Anybody need some juice? I don't know. What do we, what do we need here? I don't know what I need to do to keep you guys. Eric's leaving. He's had enough. He's done. I can't handle this anymore. Bye-bye. Oh, oh and now we got Amber. and It's a mass exodus. Back to the deer stand. All right, so here we go. Hang in there. This is worth it to understand Hosea, okay? Hosea was a prophet who preached for 33 years, from the year 755 B.C. to 722 B.C. He was a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, the nation of Israel was a united nation during the reigns of the first three kings. Do you remember them? Saul, David, and Solomon. They were a united kingdom. However, after Solomon, the country split in two. It split into a northern kingdom 
which, is, which was then called Israel, and it split into the southern kingdom, which was called Judah, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Now, it's also going to be helpful for you to know as we read Hosea that the northern kingdom of Israel also went by another name. It went by the name Ephraim. That's a weird name. Ephraim is one of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. So one of the 12 sons of Jacob. You remember that story? So Ephraim was one of the 12. Now, why is the northern kingdom sometimes referred to as Ephraim? The reason is because Ephraim, of the 10 tribes that became the northern kingdom, Ephraim was by far the biggest and strongest and most prosperous. Okay? So sometimes Israel was referred to as Ephraim, even by God. There you go. That's helpful. Now, when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split after Solomon, the two nations had two separate capitals. If you're in my timeline small group, this is a little bit of review. That's okay. Okay? Two capitals. The southern kingdom of Judah's capital is a city you recognize, the city of Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem's where the temple was. The temple that, remember, Solomon built the temple? So that city, Jerusalem, was the the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah. But the northern kingdom of Judah also had a capital city. That city also has a name you'll you'll think is familiar, but you're not going to realize what it was. That city was the city of Samaria. Samaria was a city in the northern kingdom. It was the capital of the northern kingdom. Now, Jerusalem, like I just said, had the temple, right? And God had told all the Israelites during the reign of Solomon that they were supposed to worship God at the temple. That's the only place. It's the only place, according to God, they were allowed to offer sacrifices was at the temple in Jerusalem. However, When the nation split into a northern and a southern, the kings in the north did not want their people going to Jerusalem. (coughs) Excuse me. Think about it. If you're a king in the north, the last place you want your people going is Jerusalem because in Jerusalem, that's the southern kingdom, and the king of the southern kingdom was still part of the lineage of David. None of the kings of the northern kingdom were related to David. All of the kings of the southern kingdom were descendants of David. So the northern kings did not want their people going to Jerusalem because they might decide whether down there, you know, maybe we should like give our allegiance back to the true king in the line of David. So what the, what the kings of the northern kingdom did was kind of ingenious. What they did was they said, you all don't need to go to Jerusalem anymore. In fact, I've got a better idea. They said, what we're going to do is we're going to set up on the high places of our country, because our country is better than the southern one, right? We've got the better country. We're going to set up the, 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 these, these places where you can go worship Yahweh, God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses. You can go worship Yahweh, and you don't have to go to Jerusalem to do it. It's such a long walk. Why don't you just stay here? And we're going to set up two special places, and lots of places, but two really special ones. One on the, on the high place, the, the mountain of Bethel, and the other on the mountain of Dan. Now, when you get there, I mean, we're not going to have as nice of a temple as Solomon made. I mean, you know, that's really nice, like seven wonders of the world. But we're going to do something better than what is in Jerusalem. Because in Jerusalem, only the priests can go into the holy place, 
right? You have to stay in the courtyard. We're going to do better than that. Because you can't even see the Ark of the Covenant when you go to Jerusalem. I mean, what? That's not good worship. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to create an image of Yahweh that you can worship. That's so much better than Jerusalem. So much better. In fact, the image that we're going to create that's going to help you worship Yahweh, it's, it's, a, it's a golden calf. So we're going to put a golden calf on this high place at Bethel and another one at Dan because, after all, it's more convenient, right? You just go there, and you're going to actually see what Yahweh looks like, and you can worship him. He's a golden calf. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact same mistake they made when they came out of Egypt. It's the same mistake. And so the northern kingdom, they had two golden calves, one at Bethel and one at Dan, and all the people could go and they could worship the golden calf. It's the same mistake they made at the time of Moses 500 years earlier. And now Hosea, this is all context. Hosea preaches 200 years after they set up the golden calves. So The northern country of Israel has been worshiping these golden calves at Dan and Bethel for 200 years. Oh, but it's Yahweh. It's Yahweh. So it's it's okay. It's all good. It's Yahweh, right? You know, don't worry about, what's that first first commandment? I can't remember that one. That second commandment? Oh, yeah. Don't worship a graven image. Oh, there is that. But that's okay because the king said it was fine, right? So... If that isn't even enough, there's more. The Canaanites, remember, they were the group of people that were in the land before the the Israelites came in. Remember what Joshua came in, remember that, after Moses and cleared out the Canaanites. Remember that? The Canaanites worshipped a god, a set of gods actually, but a god before the Israelites got there. Does anybody, the name of that god was B-A-A-L, Baal or Baal. It's actually Baal, I think. But again, don't speak Hebrew. Would like to. So, Baal. Now, the ba- Baal was the god that all the Canaanites worshipped because he was their fertility god. Now, a fertility god sounds strange. Why would you worship that? Well, think about it. You worship the fertility god because the fertility god is the one that's in charge of having your crops grow and your flocks grow. See, When you are an agricultural economy and you either live or die based upon whether the crops grow or the or the herds grow, worshiping the fertility god it it matters. If you actually believe that the fertility god is what causes those things to grow, you better worship him. Right? So the Canaanites worshiped Baal. And of course, he's a fertility god. Do you know how you worship a fertility god? Take a guess at how you worship a fertility God. This is the part where the kids are over there. Okay? You worship Baal, Baal, by having sex with temple prostitutes. And that, of course, wasn't just Canaanites. The, the, the Greeks later also did the same thing at the temple of Aphrodite. Yeah, of course they did. So, Yes, that's how scary it was. It was it was run out scary. So here's the deal. If that wasn't even enough, if that wasn't even enough, 
Guess what the Canaanites' image of Baal was? A bull. So now, if that isn't just a little bit confusing, imagine that you are a resident of the northern kingdom of Israel, and you've been told by your kings, who are supposed to be leading you in the ways of God, to go, don't go to Jerusalem because you can't see anything. So why don't you just stay here, go up and worship at the temple where there's a golden bull. What do you suppose the worship might look like? Here's what happened with the northern country of Israel. They combined the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal into one thing. That's called syncretism. I've said that word before to you actually a number of times. Syncretism, the people in the northern kingdom, they said, we are still worshiping Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. And in a way they were, but they had combined it with Baal. And so, guess what their worship looked like? Yes, they sacrificed at those altars like the way they were supposed to in Leviticus, right? And they had priests and everything. But guess what was right next to that? The fertility worship of Baal. It's a classic example of covering all your bases. Because if Baal does happen to be the one that causes crops to grow... Don't you suppose it makes sense just to give him a little? Welcome to northern Israel at the time of Hosea. (sighs) Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. One more thing. I know that was a lot, but there's one more thing that really matters. Hosea started his ministry during the reign of Jeroboam II. The reason why that matters, you don't have to remember that name. Here's the reason why it matters. Jeroboam II was a time of strength and prosperity for the northern kingdom of Israel. It was the final time of strength and prosperity in Israel. All of the kings for the next 30 years that followed Jeroboam II Israel was in a terrible state. But when Hosea started preaching, the nation of Israel was prosperous. Everything was going well. That matters. Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, Hosea's wife, And children is the next section. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, son of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel. Because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. 
Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, but by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Okay, so did you get that? Now, there's a lot of stuff in there that you don't, aren't going to understand because there's references to battles that we're not going to talk about. But did you understand what God told Hosea to do? I want you to marry a prostitute. That's the part I didn't want you to have to explain to your kids. What's a prostitute? Right? I'm saving you from having to explain that. Do you know what a prostitute is? No, I think you probably do. A prostitute is someone who gets paid to have sex. It's the utterness of unfaithfulness. Because if you're married to one, it's probably not great. It doesn't say former prostitute. It says practicing prostitute. Hosea the prophet, you get to be the guy that marries a prostitute. Thanks, God. How in the world are we supposed to make sense of this? How in the world are we supposed to make sense of this? What is God doing here? Jump over to Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The Lord said to me, go. Show your love to your wife again. And this is after chapter, chapter 2 is, a, is a, a section of poetry that poetically describes how Israel has been like a prostitute to God, has been like the wife of God that has gone astray. And then in the middle of that poem, God is like comparing Israel to Hosea's wife, Gomer. The whole point of this is like God's great object lesson. Remember we talked about the object lesson at the end of Jonah? <laughs> this is a much more poignant one. I mean, this, this is, I mean, if you're Hosea, you've got to be like, really? This is what you want me to do, God? And so chapter 2 is all this like, here is the evidence that your wife's a prostitute. And now chapter 3, the Lord said to me, to Hosea, Go and show your love to your wife again. God commands Hosea, after his wife had been a practicing prostitute, that Hosea is supposed to go to her and invite her back into the marriage bed. What? The Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. <laughs> the raisin cakes are part of Baal worship that go along with the temple prostitution. Don't you all eat raisin cakes when you do that? 
Maybe not. Probably a practice that's been lost to the ages. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a thick of barley. Okay, she had sold herself, but it wasn't enough, and she ended up in slavery. And now Hosea has to go buy her back from the slavery of her prostitution. Wow, this is a fun book of the Bible, everybody. You are to live with me many days, and you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. The rest of the book of Hosea are poetry. It's poems describing how Israel has been an adulterous nation against the covenant that God had made. And the covenant that God had made, remember we talked about the Old Testament and the New Testament? And I've told you this before. What does the word testament mean? Covenant. Marriage covenant. You see, human marriage is a reflection of the kind of love that God has for us. The marriage covenant is a reflection of God's covenant love for us. The old covenant and the new covenant. In this case, we're talking about the old covenant. But there's a new covenant. In my blood. We literally celebrated the new covenant today. Right? Hosea chapter 4 says, verses 6 and 7. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, you also reject I also reject you as my priests because you've ignored the law of your God. I also will ignore your children. And then just a couple verses later, verse 11. They will eat but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution but not increase because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution, to old wine and new, which take away the understanding of my people. They consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice to the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, where the shade is pleasant. Therefore your daughters turn to prostitution and their daughters-in-law to adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. This is a harsh set of verses of Scripture. This is God saying, I am wounded when my people went away from me. And it's not a a wounding that is just he's going to go cry himself to sleep. It's a wounding that comes out and says, I am jealous for my bride. The God we serve is a jealous God. When what he has is taken from him, it upsets him. Because he loves us so much. Hosea is a crazy book for lots of reasons. Now let me give you another reason why it's crazy. 
A few chapters later in Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, look at this. This is God speaking. How can I give up? How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? Or, or how can I, I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come to wrath. What? I thought he just said he was going to destroy him. In the book of Hosea, we have the picture of God as a jealous husband with an adulterous wife. And his emotion goes from incredible anger and wrath to a love and a compassion that has no limit. Some people, when they preach Hosea, they only preach the wrath side. Most pastors, when they preach Hosea, only preach the love side. And actually, most pastors just don't preach Hosea. <laughs> it's, it's just easier. God was torn asunder. His heart was wrecked because of his infinite love and his infinite jealousy that smashed together with his adulterous people. Do you know that this only happens because God loves his people? What are we supposed to make of all this? How does all of this ancient political mumbo-jumbo have anything for us today? Oh, but if you haven't already noticed from Obadiah and Nahum and Jonah, it has everything to do with us today. I see two messages in, in Hosea. There's a message of love and warning to the nation of Israel. And of course, there's a message of love and warning to the individual people of Israel. It's both. And the message is quite simple. You cannot halfway serve God. You cannot halfway love God. You cannot have a priority that is God, next to a priority that is at the same level as God. You cannot combine the worship of God with the worship of something that is not God. And that happens both as a nation and as individuals. That's the message. <coughs> what do we do with this as a nation? What do we do with this as individuals? What does it mean? Are you listening to this question? What does it mean to love God? As an American in 2021. What does that mean? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does it mean that our God today is a jealous husband? For us. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 13 through 15. God is jealous. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only. And take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods. The gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. 
What does it mean that we're supposed to love God with all that we are? What does that mean? That Go back to the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. What does that mean for us in America today? Are we loving God with all that we are as a nation? Are we loving God with all that we are as individual people? I, I don't know. There are so many possible applications for this in our country right now. But we're going to be tempted to jump on all of the people that are different than us. All of the people that are other than us instead of looking at ourselves. So yes, you can look at people that are other than us in America right now. But I don't want to do that because that's not what Hosea did. Hosea looked at the people that were supposed to be faithful to God. In America, that's the church. So that's where I'm going to look right now. What are we supposed to be doing in the church right now? Can I suggest something to you? And I hope you just don't hear me wrong. I just showed a, a video about how much I appreciate veterans in their, in their service. But I've got to say this, and I can say both. Patriotism is not worship of God. It doesn't count to say I'm a good American and so that's my worship of God. It doesn't count to say America I love and somehow that means I love God. That doesn't work. Do you know why it doesn't work? Because that's what the people of the northern kingdom did, except just instead of saying America, they said Israel. It's the same. If you think about the nationalism of the northern kingdom of Israel, they were super nationalistic. They were super like, we're the ones that are chosen by God, right? And by the way, when Hosea started, remember what I said? When Hosea started his preaching, the nation was prosperous. We are the most prosperous nation in the history of mankind. And we somehow think that our prosperity is going to shield us from the wrath of God. False. If if God didn't even protect his own covenant people that he raised up out of Israel, are we different than that? Why, Why do we think we're different than that? Can somebody answer that question? I am thankful for this country. There is no better place on the face of this earth to live because we have religious freedom. I am thankful for it, but to suggest that we don't have a huge set of issues that we've got to deal with in the sight of God is a ginormous mistake. And by the way, just just to say we're going to go back to the way it was in the 1950s, that's not the answer, folks. We just need to get back to the way it was. It's not the answer. I... I love our country. I do not worship our country. I worship God. And that means that I have to love God with how much of my life? All. How much of my soul? How much of my strength? How much of my mind? We are divided Syncretic country. Syncretism. We have combined the worship of God with the worship of something else. Now you name it. 
you name. And this isn't that hard to figure out. I, I have trouble getting us, and I have trouble as a pastor, and every pastor has the same trouble, just getting folks to read their Bible. Like, are you willing to just read your Bible for five minutes a day? Like, like pastors, I talk to pastors all the time. Yet, we just can't get people to read their Bibles for five minutes a day. How much time do you spend on TikTok? You guys, right here. How much time do you spend on TikTok every day? Instagram, Facebook, anything? You guys were just horsing around right now. I saw you do it. It's okay, though. I, I saw it. It's okay. Because it was, it's understandable. I'm calling you out. You know why? Because I'm calling all of us out. We are distracted. We are syncretic as a nation. There, how much time do you spend on this compared to how much time you spend on this every day? Answer me that question. Answer it for yourself. How much time do we spend? Okay, now this is going to, I mean, how much time do we spend listening to media sources that are designed specifically to make us angry? How much time do we spend on that? Fox News or CNN, which is it going to be? Yeah, okay, like, it's, it's, they are literally trying to make us angry. They, they are poisoning us on the inside. And we're just going to sit there and just keep consuming and consuming and consuming this. What if we consumed this like that? You tell me what would stop our church, the church in this country and this church in Bertha, if we consumed this as much as we consumed TikTok or Fox News. Answer me that question. What would happen to America? There's still time for America. But if we look at Hosea, I think the time is drawing closer to the end of this country. Nations come and nations go. This is the warning from Hosea. We are not most favored nation status. We are not. We should not act like we are. We should act like we are humble in the sight of a God who is worthy of causing us fear. These questions matter because we're super prosperous. And so I want to leave you with this thought. We're the most prosperous nation ever. We are the most prosperous people ever. Right? What are we doing with that prosperity, United States of America? What are we doing with it? How are we using it? And the second thing is, we are individually the most prosperous people in the history of mankind. Individually. What are we doing with that prosperity? Everything and everything except, I think, furthering the kingdom of God. <laughs> Not totally true, but it's, I read Hosea, I read Obadiah, I read Jonah, I see America in the crosshairs of the minor prophets. Heads up. We don't even know what it's like to live in a country that doesn't have prosperity. 
We think prosperity is our right. We are gravely mistaken. Thank you, God, for the message of Hosea. I don't understand, Lord, how how Hosea stood underneath what you commanded him to do. And yet, he did. And now, Lord, these questions, they matter to us. And we, we've got to figure out, as a people of God in this country, we have got to figure out how to lovingly change all of the fabric of our nation from the inside out. It starts with repentance of us. It starts with a recognition that have we divided our worship? Have we let an endless stream of garbage come into our lives? Have we just opened the floodgates of anger and bitterness and everything except God into our lives? I fear that we have, and our fear is only supposed to be of the Lord. Oh God. Oh God. Help us be your people again. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.